I'm Angela Kelly Robeck, host of the Empowered Principal Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello, everyone. This is Greg Goins, the founder and the host of the Reimagined Schools podcast. And before we kick off this new episode, I want to take just a few minutes of your time to say a big thank you to all of our educators out there that are going above and beyond the call of duty during this incredible time we're in with the coronavirus. As we're learning how to teach online on the fly, we're trying to make as much contact as we can with our kids and our school communities. There are so many heroes that have emerged during this time, and I now more than ever, I'm just so proud to be an educator, and every time I turn on the TV or look at social media, you know, I see that, uh, you know, educators are out delivering meals to kids, uh, so they'll have food. Um, you know, so many great stories like that, teachers in caravans driving through neighborhoods, honking their horns, waving at kids. And let me tell you something, folks. We know those kids miss us, but we miss them terribly as well. We can't wait to get back in our school. It's been a stressful time for everyone, but everyone has been able to step up to the plate and and do the very best you can in an unfortunate situation. So let's cross our fingers and hope that, uh, you know, maybe we'll be back in the classroom soon. And when we get there, folks, there are going to be a lot of hugs and high fives as we can't wait to see those kids. So after taking a couple weeks off with the podcast, trying to figure out what direction, um, you know, I want to go during this unsettling time, you know, the, ultimately this podcast is about helping you, the educator, create better opportunities for kids in your classrooms whenever that may be. So I continue, continue to encourage educators at all grade levels to use this time to, uh, you know, improve your own professional practice, you know, jump in on some Twitter chats, join a Facebook group, uh, maybe start a podcast study and use the Reimagined Schools podcast or your favorite podcast study along the way. Book studies are always very popular, so take advantage of this time, and I can't think of a better way to uh, honor all of you out there listening than to keep plugging out uh, new episodes so you'll have something to, to hold on to as you think about creating better schools for kids. So let's get back to it, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. My special guest this week is Ross Cooper, a school administrator in New York and former fourth grade teacher who's the co-author of the popular book, Hacking Project-Based Learning, 10 Easy Steps to PBL and Inquiry in the Classroom with his co-author, Aaron Murphy. Ross Cooper is an Apple Distinguished Educator and a Google Certified Innovator. He's recognized as a leader in project-based learning. His next book, PBL Real Questions, Real Answers, will be available later this summer, so be sure to look for that wherever books are sold. If you have an interest in PBL, then this episode is for you as Ross Cooper offers some great advice on how to get project-based learning off the ground in your school. You can follow Ross on Twitter at RossCoops31. You can also find his popular blog at RossCoops31. 
www.ross.com. Before we get into my conversation with Ross Cooper, I'm very excited to announce a new sponsor for the month of April as I welcome in the Illinois Digital Educators Alliance, IDEA, and they're certainly full of some big ideas as the largest organization in Illinois devoted to the use of technology in education. I'm a former member myself as a former school superintendent and principal in the state of Illinois. They have wonderful leadership there with my friend Amber Hefner, who serves as the executive director of this amazing group of educators. So you want to be sure to check them out. They're doing some amazing things. In fact, IDEA is continually looking for ways to provide assistance and resources to you as we all navigate the new normal in education. If you haven't had a chance to visit their new at-home learning site, please visit idealinois.org slash home dash learning. The IDEA staff has been gathering resources and scheduling webinars to support e-learning in your school district. So be sure to check it out today. They are a great resource for this unsettling time in our schools. With that, folks, I hope you kick back and enjoy this conversation with Ross Cooper. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Very excited to have an expert in project-based learning. He's a school administrator, author, and speaker. Welcome into Ross Cooper. How are you, Ross? Great, Greg. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, and I'm so excited to finally get to meet you in person. I've, I've been hearing your name for a long, long time. I've had the good fortune of talking to some amazing people on the podcast about project-based learning specifically, and almost to a man or woman in some cases, Ross Cooper keeps coming up. So how did you become the guru of project-based learning? Yeah, so, well, I don't know if I'm necessarily the guru, uh, but thanks. Um, but uh, but I, I think uh, through, through uh, tri- a lot of it's trial and error, right? Passion, right? Um, when we're passionate about what, what uh, and we believe in what we're doing, um, we really, you know, put everything that we have into it. Um, and, you know, it's something that I feel like I could have benefited from when I was a student. So when I became a teacher, that's how I taught, um, while also being cognizant of the fact that not every student learns that way, or you could take PBL and mold it and try to make it work for as many students as possible. But also um, having autonomy as a teacher, I could say it was huge. And um, that's something that drove me to become an administrator so I could give teachers that same autonomy that I had. But really, I, um, as a fourth grade teacher um, in the East Penn School District in uh, Pennsylvania, um, I had a, a really great amount of autonomy and support uh, to make these types of experiences, and whether it's STEM, PBL, makerspaces, what have you, um, to make it work for my students through trial and error. And it, of course, it can be intimidating. Um, but you know, just like anything else, you have to move backwards before you move forwards, right? Um, so I made a lot of mistakes. I still make mistakes. I feel like I'm going to look at where I am right now, five years ago and be like, oh my gosh, like, I wish I knew, you know, then what I know now. Um, so that really helped. And also a whole lot of reading, you know, a whole lot of reading. I think, um, you know, there's some books, um, specifically, I always cite, you know, the understanding by design, Grant Wiggins and Jay McTighe really me was like the Bible. And when I started reading that, looked into some of the stuff from the Buck Institute, um, that really got me hooked. Um, on making, you know, these types of experiences worthwhile for my students. Yeah, and you made reference to being a fourth grade teacher, and I know you, you've had a couple stints as an elementary school principal. 
at, at what point, whether it was in the classroom or maybe uh, in the principalship, did, did you kind of have that aha moment and say, you know what, we've got to really take a hard look at PBL just for the simple fact that we have to engage kids. They have to be more involved in, in inquiry and passion projects. I mean, did you have an aha moment that you can relate to? Um, I, think, I think probably the biggest aha moment for me um, was when I think it was probably like my third year. I want to say my third year teaching fourth grade. And, you know, I had the group of students who, um, you know, they struggled a little bit. I always hate the word like low, you know, those students were low. Um, and we hear that a lot in education. I think that's some vocabulary we need to do away with. Um, so I won't say that. Um, so I'll just say students that, you know, that struggled. And it felt like the whole year I was beating my head against the wall trying to get them to learn. And then, of course, come like I think it was like March or April, once school testing was over, it was kind of like, all right, like now let's have some fun. And like I said, I was beating my head against the wall the entire year. Um, state testing was over. We had some fun. We did this artist project and it was really more open-ended, kind of PBL-ish, student-centered, student choice and voice, that whole stuff. And what they were able to accomplish was absolutely amazing. Um, so, you know, there's this whole idea sometimes that, you know, the kids I have couldn't do this, whether it's because they're quote unquote low or because of their grade level. And what those students taught me that year you know, is that any students could, it's just a matter of making it work for the students that are in front of us. So that happened at the end of that year. And then at the beginning of the year after that, I was kind of like the heck with it. I'm going to start the year with projects or project-based learning experiences, um, one or the other, because there's a difference between the two. Um, but either way, you know, a form of student-centered learning. And I kept that rolling throughout, um, throughout the entire year. And then every year that I taught thereafter, continually refining my craft, making it more student-centered and infusing more and more inquiry um, into what students were doing. Well, you have a great book uh, on PBL that came out in 2016 with your co-author, Aaron Murphy, who is also an elementary school principal out East. And the name of the book is Hacking Project-Based Learning, 10 Easy Steps to PBL and Inquiry in the Classroom. And I think the thing that's that is so wonderful about this book, and you need to jump out and get this, folks, if you have an interest in PBL, but it really is a step-by-step -step guide, and you probably hear this a lot because I know I do. Uh, a lot of teachers will say, well, we're already doing projects in our classroom, mm -hmm. but there's a big difference between doing the occasional project and really having this mindset that you're going to put kids in a position to not only do project-based learning, but they're actually going to accomplish something in the long run. Yeah, yeah. I think. Um when I first started, I mean, this is like a subject that we could go on and on about this forever, right? Projects versus PBL. Um, and I think many things about it. I think a lot of times, um, the first thing I'll say is that, you know, as somebody who really appreciates PBL and for anybody who appreciates PBL, it's easy to look at projects and kind of look down upon that and say, oh, people shouldn't be doing old school projects. And what I say is anybody who's proficient in PBL got their foot in the door by doing old school projects first and foremost, right? It's kind of like getting your foot in the door. Um, and then you build on top of that until you have uh, project-based learning experiences, just like anybody who's integrating technology into the classroom or doing anything else, right? You start at a more rudimentary level and then you get better and better and better. So by looking down upon people who, where we are now, like where we were like a couple of years ago, um, it's discouraging progress. It's discouraging people and it's discouraging, you know, um, excellence and others from moving forward, if that makes sense. So I think projects are, are definitely a stepping stone in the PBL. Um, and, and I think if we look at the main differences between the two, it's 
with a project and it's kind of like, okay, now that you've learned everything, let's do something cool with it. With a project-based learning experience, it's kind of like, hey, we're gonna do something really cool. Now let's work our way through and learn what we need to do in order to make it happen. So this idea of this performance task or performance tasks permeates the entire unit and is the learning in and of itself rather than thrown, being thrown in at the end um, as kind of like the fun stuff. Um, so, so to me, that's like the, that's really the big difference. Um, and I think sometimes when we, one more point I'll make is that sometimes when we do project-based learning professional development or any type of professional development, we kind of, a lot of times we inadvertently say, you know, forget everything you've done over the past 10 years. That's not the answer. I have found the answer. This is what you need to do. Right. And when we do that, of course, we disrespect the work that came before us and we piss a whole lot of people off. But by saying, okay, we know you're doing projects, let's start there and move toward project-based learning. Um, you're building something from something, which is generally easier than building something from nothing. And also you're respecting the work that came before you. And therefore, you know, we're more than uh, we're more likely to make progress. So, I mean, I have many thoughts on this, but um, I, I think it's a matter of leveraging those old school projects um, to move towards PBL rather than looking down upon them. And, you know, you made reference to the Buck Institute, and I had the good fortune of having Bob Lenz on the podcast, uh, you know, probably a year ago. And uh, I had just an interesting conversation with him. And that's a great resource, folks. The Buck Institute, if you go to their website, you'll find some great resources on PBL. But he was talking about uh, this idea that in a lot of cases, PBL is the dessert that comes at the end of the big meal. And so, you know, what we'll do all the learning, we'll do all the hard stuff. And at the end, you know, we'll have a fun project that'll be the dessert. We have to kind of shift that mindset. Uh, PBL needs to be the main course and it needs yeah. to be the focal point of, of what you're doing. So I thought that was a great analogy to talk about maybe some of the, the missteps that people take when they think about implementing PBL. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and I think it's that context, right? It's, it's that context. Um, so all those lessons that you teach, rather, whether they're small, like 15 minute lessons or more extended lessons that last 45 minutes to an hour, there's context behind them and there's more intentionality. So it's not just like, you know, just learn this so you could do well on a test. It's learn this so you could accomplish some or try to accomplish some sort of task. Um, so that there's more of a drive to learn. And then it's, and it's also, um, you know, this push and pull between the parts and the whole, you know, the parts of those individual lessons and the whole are those performance tasks. And as you go back and forth and you connect your learning to those performance tasks um, through productive struggle, it promotes deeper um, understanding of what you're doing. It, it's kind of like the equivalent of like saying to, to somebody like, um, like if you were going to take like a sport, you know, like you wouldn't just learn a whole bunch of drills in isolation and say like, okay, like now we're going to give you a pencil and paper test on it or maybe at the end I'll let you play the game. It's like, no, like we're gonna play basketball and let's learn what we need to learn in order to be proficient at that game. Yeah, yeah and I think so that's- Very much, yeah. Yeah, very I think much. that's very well said. And, and I just think it's a, a shift in the mindset as to how we're going to approach, you know, really diving deep into that inquiry-based model. You know, I, I just talked to Dr. Sarah Fine uh, on a recent episode and she did a, some extensive research on how to remake the American high school and PBL was a part of that. But she used a term that I'd not heard before. She was talking about visiting wall-to-wall -wall PBL schools. And in my mind, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what that means exactly. But I would think that means that they're going PBL in all subject areas all day, every day. 
And so that would be a little bit different than the dessert approach. Yeah, I, I think um, <laughs> the biggest difference there, excuse me, is uh, this idea that it's just, it's systemic. You know, it's systemic. So a lot of times when we do PBL, and I know this happened to me and it happened to my co-author, Aaron, when we taught in an elementary school, we kind of like stuck out, right? We were the, or we were those square pegs in the round holes. Um, and then, you know, you have parents kind of asking, well, what's going to happen next year? What's going to happen next year? You know, like you're known as those PBL teachers. And I can imagine the benefits of having a wall-to-wall PBL school is one, like as teachers, you don't have to fight that battle, right? You don't really have to explain um, why you're doing things differently. But I think uh, more importantly than that, the students benefit from it, right? Because if it's something that we truly believe in, then, you know, it's, it's this idea that it should be happening all the time everywhere. And, and that's what a wall-to-wall PBL school allows for. I think, um, and I've never worked in a wall-to-wall PBL school, but I can imagine, you know, there's a lot of like myths surrounding them. Like, what is it exactly like? And, you know, some of the same myths that align with project-based learning and, you know, the direct instruction, you know, and more formal type instruction does have its place in PBL um, because you can't, we always say like, you can't think critically about nothing, right? It's not like students are going to magically like bump into everything you want them to learn. So, you know, for anybody who's skeptical of those types of schools, um, you know, it, it, might, it might not be as tremendously, like drastically different as you imagine it to be. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a matter of really like, you know, getting through the weeds and seeing what they're really all about. Um, you know, like I said, I've never worked in any of them, but, um, you know, it would be interesting. You know, there are so many great benefits of using this inquiry-based model, you know, the PBL approach, obviously. You know, if you think about the future of work, I mean, the workplace is a project-based world. So if we're talking about teaching kids essential skills, I would think that would be, you know, highly relative to, to teaching them how to enter the workforce. Um, but, uh, you know, I think too many times there's this disconnect that teachers have and even school leaders, you know, uh, not really understanding fully what project-based learning is. Why do you think there are so many different variations and so many different thoughts and ideas about something that really is a pretty simple concept? Yeah, I think, I think this happens with everything, you know, I, and I've always said this, like, no matter what the initiative is, um, like we should be able to define what it is, you know, like if, so when we're giving feedback to students, we want that feedback to be goal oriented, right? It has to relate to the certain goal that students need to accomplish, but we don't necessarily do that with adults. Um, so let's say we want teachers to get better at, you know, whether it's project-based learning or writing workshop or guided reading or whatever it might be. Um, it helps to define what that practice is while giving teachers the flexibility to kind of make it their own. And a lot of times we're very hesitant to say, okay, we're going to tackle project-based learning as a district. And we've decided like, these are the components of project-based learning. And these are what they should look like in the classroom. You know, we're not, and we're not using the word fidelity because I can't stand the word fidelity because that means, that means like, we're not, we don't trust in our teachers, but there shouldn't be necessarily a ceiling, but there should be a floor, you know? So if you're not doing this as a district or as a school, by our definition, it's not project-based learning. So so I think sometimes we're hesitant to do that because um, then we're, we're really holding ourselves accountable, right? So I think sometimes, and we, we miss these steps. So we have this nebulous target and we don't know if and when we're hitting it. We don't know if and when our teachers are hitting it. So we're missing that step where we say, okay, like project-based learning, whether we think it's simple, whether we think it's complex, we need to sit down, what are the components, whether there's eight or nine or 10, what do, the, what do those look like in action? 
So as an administrator, when I go into a teacher's classroom, I could give feedback related to those goals. And when teachers are collaborating, they could collaborate, whether it's um, peer assessing or self-assessing or whatever it might be with those goals in mind. Um, I think we missed that step. I think because there's so many moving parts with PBL, um, when we miss that step, it's really detrimental. But when we're implementing other approaches that aren't as complex, uh, we might be able to get away with it. Um, I also think sometimes there's lots of models out there and we either have to pick a model and stick with it or we have to look at all the models out there and decide what works best for us and our students. Yeah, and, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, I, I find it fascinating. Sometimes I hear teachers talk about the PBL experience, almost like it's a ride at Disney World. We're all going to get on the PBL ride, and this is what we're going to do in the third quarter or the second semester or whatever the yeah. case may be. And so I'm, I'm just kind of struggling with this idea that, um, you know, PBL just probably needs a, a, a better press agent to kind of get the word out as to what it actually is and how it can be beneficial in the classroom. And again, I keep going back to it. It's just a really a culture change in if you go back to inquiry based learning and creating student centered classrooms. I mean, wouldn't you want to embed some type of P PBL in what you're doing? Yeah, I think. Um, so right now, um, and I mentioned to this when we were off audio before, but you know, we have a new book coming out, Aaron and I, in uh, probably before the summer, April, May. Um, tentative titles, uh, project-based learning, real questions, real answers. And we actually talk about this um, in the current draft, in the conclusion, like we treat PBL as on again, like off again. You know, like this, like as you're saying, Greg, like this semester, this semester, like we're going to do a PBL or people call it like PBLs where I don't know where that came from. Right. And what it's saying is to, what it really inadvertently the message you're sending to students is, um, okay, like the normal learning is going to take place three quarters of the year, but this one quarter, you're going to get to learn the cool way. And that's, that's really a terrible message to send. Like I, I could kind of understand maybe if you're just starting out with PBL, maybe I could understand that. But I think what we need to do is we need to look at it not as like you're doing PBL or you're not doing PBL, but we look at all these different components of PBL, which I kind of talked about before. And those could be like, whether it's, um, you know, essential questions, even like flexible learning spaces, um, whether it's, you know, more rubrics, whether it's student self-assessment, whether it's student publishing, like basically what PBL is, um, it's a whole bunch of like these best practices you know, or these, these research-based practices strung together, right? We take all these practices, we put them together, and we have an inquiry-based unit that is PBL. So throughout the year, whether it's full-blown PBL or not, we could be in, um, integrating these practices into our classroom to send the message that, hey, we appreciate student-centered learning, we appreciate inquiry. Although this might not be a full-blown PBL experience, um, we're still moving in this direction. But the last thing we really wanna do is have like this stark contrast between when we're doing PBL um, and when we're not doing PBL, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it does. And, and I think another thing that a lot of people kind of gloss over is the fact that uh, co-teaching is a great model for PBL. And you can also do a lot of things across the curriculum at different grade levels. Uh, you could even do district-wide PBL uh, if you really wanted to take that plunge. But uh, you think about being able to sprinkle in various points of technology. There are just so many different opportunities out there that uh, we just need to stop and think about. How, how can we get other people involved besides just that teacher in that silo in that classroom? 
Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, <clears throat> it's it's not easy, right? That's like the million dollar question. Like, how do you move people forward? You know, and I think I think it's um, you know, just like any other change. Like, you know, I could as an administrator coming into a school or district, um, it's easy to say, um, you know, like, you know, I believe, you know, like I'm the PBL person. This is what I believe in though everybody should be doing it. So I think a lot of it is, you know, just like anything else, relationships, respecting the work that came before you and kind of planting seeds. Where I've had success with it as an administrator before is you always had those early adopters. You know, you always have those people, whether it's where I am now or the other schools I've been in, who really want to like, you know, take the lead with this. And generally, um, as an administrator, more or less, like they come to me, I don't have to go to them, you know, you or you find each other out. Um, and then you have those people who have those early successes and it kind of removes those that risk factor for other people. And then other people more likely to jump on board. Um, but I am very hesitant, like, you know, and this has even come up like in, I remember one of my interview questions I had for a principal. It's like, so if you're a principal, does that mean we're doing PB, we're going to start doing project-based learning? And I couldn't tell if they wanted project-based learning, like, or if they didn't, you know what I mean? Like I, did, I didn't know which way that questioner was going or what kind of answer they wanted. So I'm kind of answering it the way I am now. Like it's a tool, it's in my toolkit if we want to use it, or it's in my toolbox or whatever. Um, you know, if we want to use it, we can. But, you know, I'm not going to force my passion on other people's throats, you know. Um, and ultimately, if it's what's best for kids, you know, we'll get there. Um, but nobody likes to have their current work disrespected. Um, and nobody likes to have, like, you know, their identity. Everybody has this identity as a professional and as a person. And nobody likes to have that challenge right off the bat, especially from a new administrator. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of times whenever people start a new project or, or a new big idea, a lot of times when they hit that first roadblock, you know, they're going to have to decide, do we want to push through or do we want to just do something different? And I think for a lot of people, and I want your take on this, the first big roadblock, excuse me, for PBL is what should the, th the overall theme be or what should the project be or yeah. what should the focus be? And I know in your book, you used uh, the example of uh, building a pinball machine, yeah. but are there others kind of that you can share with our listeners? Maybe they're thinking about diving into this, but they're kind of trying to figure out what kind of theme or topic they can roll with. Yeah, so the way we kind of divide it out is by, by tracks. Um, so we call it, you know, there's a product track, um, which is at the end of the project. Everybody has the same product, um, but they don't all necessarily look the same. Just like with the pinball machines, we had, we, I think we had like 15 pinball machines, but they all looked for the most part completely different. Um, and the product track also encompasses like if you're going to put on some type of an event, like a play or a puppet show or something like that. Um, then there's a problem track which is something that um, is a little bit, could be a little bit more intimidating as an entry point, which is you're gonna tackle a problem, which could be a real world problem. It could be something that you give to students or something that they find on their own. And it's gonna be something like, you know, cafeteria food. You know, how do we improve our cafeteria food? To one of the things I did with my students was, um, you know, everybody adopted an endangered animal and did something to help it to survive. And then there's more of an open-ended track. And this is probably more like for the more experienced students and teachers, where it's like, I want you to show me an understanding of this. You know, like you need to show me that you understand, you know, these concepts, you know, of electricity and magnetism and force and motion. Now go ahead and do it with minimal direction. You know, almost like Genius Hour, but giving students overarching topic and understandings. Um, I think generally as an entry point, that product track, you know, having all the students create the same product or a similar product, um, is a nice entry point. And that could be something, you know, as simple as like creating an authentic poster to advertise an event. Um, 
to, you know, one of the things I did with my students was solar powered cars. Um, it's a little bit less risky. It's a little bit more formulaic, but I think the key there is once again, you're introducing that product at the beginning of the project or the beginning of the unit, not at the beginning. And you're giving students flexibility to make it their own. Um, so yes, there might be certain requirements for let's say those pinball machines or those solar powered cars. Um, there are certain requirements, but aside from those requirements, you know, the creativity and the ownership is yours. My guest today is Ross, Ross Cooper. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at RossCoops31. Also, the uh, web address is the same, RossCoops31.com. Um, what are some of the big questions you get whenever you go out and speak or whenever you uh, are doing consulting work on PBL? My thought initially would be, you know, a, a lot of teachers are, are very interested in, in taking this dive and, and uh, you know, jumping into PBL. But a lot of times I even get these questions. You know, are there models out there we can look at? What school districts around the country are really doing great things yeah. with PBL that we can kind of take a look inside and see what they're doing? Uh, how do you yeah. answer those questions? The, the biggest question that I get, and it's funny, so another cheap plug, our new book coming out, every chapter is focused on those questions. I think there's about 10 chapters. Every chapter is focused on a question that we get, that, that we have gotten over the past, you know, eight years that we've done PBL professional development. So the biggest one, the biggest question we get is, um, how do I get grades? Um, so um, that's the biggest one, is how do I get grades? And, you know, and this is another thing that we could go on forever and ever about. Um, but my belief, and we put this in the book, is if you look at some of the work out there, what really motivates creative work is that great, you know, if you throw a grade at creativity, you're going to squash creativity. So as much as possible, we don't talk about grading the project itself. Um, you assess the project itself. And that also means that we need to have an understanding of the differences between assessment and grading and not use them interchangeably, because sometimes we do when we shouldn't. Um, but grading more or less says, I want to judge you and assessment or feedback says, I want to help you. So we need to constantly assess our students, um, throughout the project and only grade it if absolutely necessary, or we look at the content that's being tackled throughout the project. And maybe we give some other type of assessment on that content, whether it's a quiz or maybe some type of test or performance task, but as, and we could get a grade from that, but we don't necessarily want to grade the project itself. Um, that's probably the biggest one. And I think there's, there's a whole lot in the new book dedicated to that. Um, and also talking about the importance of self-assessment and peer assessment. Because really, if we want that idea of student ownership and agency, that's where our focus should lie, is you know, how to give students control of their progress and not constantly be having to raise their hand in order to move forward. Um, as far as exemplars go, um, you, know, you mentioned uh, the Buck Institute before. I think that they... Um, they now call themselves PBL Works. I'm still a little confused, but I think whatever it is, um, you know, they do great work. I think they have exemplars on their website that I've seen before. Um, Edutopia, you know, those are two websites that help get me started. And also Getting Smart, they do some great work with PBL. I think, um, and I think they're great. Um, you know, these videos helped inspire me when I first started with PBL. I think the main thing is then we're following up with the how. You know, because sometimes people see these videos and even um, I should mention, I should have mentioned this when we talked about wall to wall PBL schools in my former district. Um, we watched the video most likely to succeed from high tech high with, you know, Tony Wagner um, and Tony Wagner's book. Uh, what was it? Creating innovators. Was, yeah. To, and, and global achievement gap are two great books that I've read. Um, and, you know, he was somebody he's somebody else who's inspired me a ton. 
Um, but we look at these videos and we, we look at these movies and it's intimidating, right? Because um, if we're constantly on social media or, or we're constantly learning about PBL, to us, it's nothing new. But we have to think about how others might feel when these videos and these movies are put in front of them. And a lot of times it could do more harm than good. And if we're just showing this and being like, wow, this is awesome. This is what we need to be doing. And, you know, now go do it. And we're not following, following up with enough, you know, sufficient, deep professional learning. Then we're really doing our teachers and educators a disservice. Um, and I think a lot of times we think we're giving our people enough support, but we're really not. And that's really the importance of whenever we're rolling something out, constantly gauging the pulse of where people are adjusting and moving forward, just like we would with our students. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation and I could talk about this all day long. <laughs> I, I really admire what you're doing. I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, I do want to give you a, a closing thought because uh, we're getting close on time here, but um, you know, I, I just think about uh, all the great things happening in schools and uh, you know, this episode will probably air around the first week of March, 2020. And I, we have a lot of teachers and administrators listening to the podcast, obviously, but you know, is that too late in the school year to kind of start PBL or what advice do you have for just getting started? Um, so a couple things. Um, I think you could look at those practices that are, that make up PBL. Um, and, you know, I'm, and I talked about them before. And if you Google, like, you know, a good article that I actually used when I got started is the Buck Institute or PBL Works has one. And I think it's like the essential elements of project-based learning. Um, you could look at that. And I talked about before, like student publishing, essential questions. We talked about flexible learning spaces. Just do something. Just do something because whatever you're doing is a component of project-based learning and therefore you're moving in that direction. Um, so I think that's a great way to get started. Um, I think a lot of times what, what I've seen is a lot of districts and schools will roll out an initiative and they'll say, this year we want everybody to do one you know, PBL experience with their students, right? And we've all kind of heard that, right? You know, this is all we want you to do. And what happens is when we do that, we don't have a chance to iterate until the next year, right? We do, we do like this four or six week experience. It's great. And it's like, all right, I'm not going to be able to apply what I've learned from this until next year. Um, what we really want is those rapid cycles of iteration. So rather than one big project, how about like three to four really, really small projects where we're constantly going through the cycle of iteration and learning and applying what we've learned. So by the time we're on that third or fourth uh, small project, uh, we're that much further ahead than we would be if we did one big project. So I would say those smaller projects are huge. And also just looking at the components of PBL and just throwing them at your students and trying to make them stick. Um, those are two great ways to go aside from just doing this one big project and then waiting to the next year to go again. And I think that's great advice to close. So you really are the guru of PBL. So thanks for being here. I really appreciate it, Ross. Thanks, Greg. It's, it's been a pleasure. Be sure to connect with Ross again on Twitter at RossCoops31 and the website of the same name. And check out all the resources that have been mentioned in the podcast. We'll put those in the show notes. And as we wrap up another episode, folks, always do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.